0: much does it hear? How good is its hearing? And it's not like you can put a walleye through a hearing test, right?
1: (laughs) That's Minnesota writer Paul Radomsky talking about what is arguably Minnesota's favorite fish, the walleye. In addition to being a writer, Paul is a fisheries biologist and lake ecology scientist. His new book is Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. It's a comprehensive look at the history, biology, and future of this species. Our What We're Reading conversation begins with Paul speaking to what makes Minnesota state fish so popular.
0: I think it's because it's a challenging fish to catch. But there are times and places where fishing for walleye is really good. So that mix of hard to catch, but sometimes you catch a lot of fish and it's really exciting. So I think it's that. And then second, I think it's that they're good to eat. They produce a perfect fillet and um, a very tasty fish, um, no matter how (laughs) how you prepare it, I think. And those two reasons, I think, in addition to the fact that they're pretty common in this part of the world.
1: Let's get into the history of walleye. And I'm talking way back. In your book, you note that the walleye's ancestral beginnings were in rivers and not the lakes that we're used to today. Can you tell us about the early days of the walleye?
0: Yeah, it's it's actually quite fascinating because um, and it's a challenge for for folks to understand about the beginnings because it you know it evolved long ago, millions of years ago, and they they recently found fossils in Canada of the ancestor of walleye. Um, this is when the the two continents were connected um, europe and in North America, and uh, when they split apart, the species started to diverge and that's where we got walleye and we got sauger um, that diverged from this common ancestor that was you know something like walleye, very similar or similar to xander, which you find in Europe. The fossils that were discovered recently hint at what that fish look like it, and probably where it lived, you know, living in more riverine situations, probably um, the result of um, large drainage areas. So it was adapted to, to living in um, very oxygenated and cold, cool water streams. And that's uh, how it's adapted its various life histories about you know, when it spawns, it deposits its eggs on clean gravel substrates, and that allows them, the eggs, a better chance of survival. Um, And then they looked at some of the genetics. So the geneticists looked at, you know, when did these species start breaking out? And I found that really fascinating. So, you know, there's some pieces of science that talk about, you know, what walleye have been here for millions of years, and they've adapted two rivers, but then they have expanded out to the lakes, where they're, where we think of them more as a, as a lake species. Um, but it goes back to the fact that where you find them in lakes, it's often larger lakes that still have clean substrates that are wave-washed because they've got large fetches, and it, it allows the Shallow water substrates to to be cleaned, and for those eggs then to survive when they're deposited on those um, gravel or rubble shores.
1: You spend some time in this book talking about some of the most popular walleye lakes for fishing, and among them here in Minnesota are Mille Lacs and Red Lake. Can you tell us what makes these lakes popular for walleye fishing, and why you wanted to include these in your book?
0: Why I picked those is because I think they had really unique. Um, challenges and really unique public engagement or action activities related to fish management on Malax. There's challenges to the management right now that is somewhat in a stasis. That you have um, very restrictive um, angler regulations with regard to keeping walleyes, and I thought the science that was done on Malax was really fascinating, and the predicament that fisheries management is in, because biologists couldn't agree on the status of the fishery, was an interesting story that a lot of people might be interested in, because that is one of the most popular walleye fisheries in the state. So I had to cover that. And then Red Lake, I had, I had lived up in International Falls and, and was familiar with it. And that's just an interesting story about the walleye population collapsing in the 90s. And how um, the Red Lake Nation, partnering with Minnesota DNR, how they work together to restore that fishery and are managing it in such a way that it benefits all. And I thought that was a beautiful story to tell about how the Red Lake Nation has, has really changed that and, and, and improved that fishery, restored that fishery and they should have pride in what they've done in in that situation and how it benefits the red lake nation um, peoples so i i wanted to talk about that because i know it's been covered a lot in the bemidji area Um, many other people may not have heard about it so i wanted to put it in the book because it really is a, a really interesting scientific fish management story to be be told, and and the social part of it where people have to work together. I thought that was really cool.
1: We're talking with Minnesota writer Paul Radomsky. Paul is also a fisheries biologist and lake ecology scientist, and his new book is Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark. Paul, this is such an extensively researched book that I'm really curious to know at this point what don't we know about the walleye? Are there aspects of the walleye that you yourself still have questions about after writing this book?
0: There are a lot of things. If you just start thinking about just basic things about, say, its senses, right? So we, we know a lot about the walleye's eye because it's so unique and such a prominent feature for the fish. It has the back of the eye reflector so it can see in, in very low-light conditions. So it's evolved. So that it sees in barely dim lit areas, Mm -hmm. and then I start thinking, well, well, how much does it hear? You know how how good is its hearing? And it's not like you can put a walleye through (laughs) a hearing test, right? So somebody was asking me, well, if I'm if I'm on the on the lake sitting in my boat and I'm talking, do you think the walleye hears? And I go, hmm, that's a great question. I don't Mm -hmm. know. And then you know, how well does it smell? It's it's got a large nose, of course. You know how? I mean, does it smell the waste are, of our mm-hmm. combustion engines in the water, right? So we're, we're driving around the lake. Can it smell that exhaust as I can smell mm-hmm. the bus fumes in the cities when I'm down there? And, and I notice it, whereas maybe my son and daughter don't notice because they live in there every day. So it's just basic things about how do they sense their world and how different is it from us? So those are things that strike me as that might be interesting to folks if we'd actually studied that and learned a little bit more about that.
1: So looking ahead or thinking about the current state of of the world, of the planet, what will change in regards to the walleye species if current conditions, proliferation of invasive species, lake warming, chemical pollution in lakes, what will happen if these things continue unchanged?
0: Yeah, that, that is the challenge of our time. Um, we've got a lot of stress on the rest of nature right now that we're putting on onto those aquatic systems, whether they're lakes or rivers. I mean, we're converting, we're converting lands to agricultural uh, land uses, which increases you know, a lot of uh, pollution, both phosphorus and siltation. And um, we're warming the planet with our air pollution. So I think I think, we're in, I think we really have to step up and start managing our waste and our pollution if we're going to protect stuff that we love. You know, and many people love the rest of nature, whether it's walleye or birds or, or trees. And if we're going to thrive, those species have to thrive as well we're all connected, we're united, we're all related, and we <laughs> we better start treating our relationship, our, our relatives, with a little bit more kindness. And uh, if things keep going, to your point, if things keep going the way they are, it's not a good thing for us or Walleye. And we're starting to see this already as the temperatures warm, as lakes warm, those lakes are are shifting their fish communities from walleye to um, to bass dominated systems. Mm-hmm. So they're seeing this in Wisconsin wh- where they have more you know medium sized lakes than say Minnesota, where walleye are being um, out competed by bass and those bass are are increasing in in abundance and uh, are shifting those those fish communities to a whole different type of, of fishing so you're going to be more bass dominated more bluegill dominated more of a panfish kind of lakes
1: mm. does that have to do with the water temperature specifically
0: too yes yes okay. exactly so the water temperatures are warming so mm-hmm. um bass are more of a warm water species walleye being a cool water species so they're they their range is going to start moving um much like many other things that we're starting to see move right whether it's summer nesting birds you know um um, some of those uh, are moving from the south north and you're going to see the same thing with walleye there you're going to see less walleye lakes you know at at our latitudes and you know they're probably going to expand north into some of the cold water lakes where lake trout may be more common right now so we're going to see that and then you know, I'm talking to a lot of people. The lakes are changing because of our pollution, so they're getting greener from the phosphorus pollution that we're we're creating and not managing. Whether it's from homeowners around a lake or or cities that are living on a lake, Bemidji is a great example, right? I mean, um, look where the runoff goes for for lake, for the city of Bemidji. A lot of that water ends up, you know, in the nearby waterways and that ends up, you know, degrading water quality. And when you degrade water quality, walleye are although they're, they're, they're pretty resilient, they do have limits and thresholds. And I think I think we'll see the consequences of that. Um, and we're seeing that certainly in, in southern Minnesota where you where you once had sustainable natural reproducing walleye. Um, those populations aren't there anymore. And um, and then you have management agencies that have to stock this when before they used to be self-sustaining so i think mm-hmm. those are the kinds of problems we're going to see if we don't change the way we live and and interact with the rest of nature oh boy <laughs> but i like to i like to keep a positive uh, you know attitude about this we can change we can learn we can start thinking about our impacts and start saying well I shouldn't harm my relatives, right? You know, I are related to me. We all exist on the tree of life. I should have some self-control as both a person and as a society. So our cultures can change. Often they change because we're forced to change and we may be forced to change here soon.
1: That's Minnesota writer, fisheries biologist and lake ecology scientist, Paul Radomsky. His new book is Walleye, A Beautiful Fish of the Dark, published by the University of Minnesota Press.